Good morning. Um, I'm, I'm just so glad to see you and welcome to the Story Church. I'm, I'm welcoming not only those of you who are part of the church now um, here at uh, the Museum District and also at our Timber Grove campus. Uh, we love you in the Heights. Hello, guys. I'm also welcoming um, by video all of the listeners and viewers of the Maybe God podcast. So this is a Maybe God podcast uh, event as well as a worship service. And so if you're not familiar with the Maybe God podcast, I highly encourage you to check it out. It's a, it's a ministry, really, an outreach, a podcast that we put a lot of work and effort into. It's, we're now in season five. We've got over 50 full-length, long-form, like story-based episodes that really talk about a lot of the issues you'll hear Dr. Craig and I talk about in a minute, but, but through the lens of storytelling. And the most recent episode comes from um, right here in our own community. It's, it's gripping. It's, I think, hard to listen to, but it's also so important as we tackle the question of why does God allow suffering? So be sure and check out the Maybe God podcast at maybegodpod.com. All right. Um, so I have the privilege today of introducing one of my personal heroes of faith. Um, I was unfamiliar with this man and his extensive work in the field of Christian apologetics um, until 2013 when I became, for the first time in my life, like a believer in Jesus, the risen Jesus, um, resurrected and Lord and Savior of us all. It's like that's the moment that it changed for me was in 2013. I was like in my early 30s. And that's when someone turned me on to the work of Dr. Craig, first through some YouTube videos and then through books like this one that I carry around with me a lot uh, called On Guard. This is sort of the, to me, sort of the most uh, wide-reaching um, and seminal texts of, of Dr. Craig. You can find it just about anywhere. That's not a sales pitch. I just love the book. And uh, we teach our apologetics camp to our students in the summertime based largely on uh, Dr. Craig's work in that book. Now, if you have ever been influenced or touched by the likes of C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton or even Lee Strobel, uh, who himself um, was in part led to faith in Christ through the work of Dr. Craig, then you're going to be really blessed by today's uh, talk. Now, I also want to thank the good folks at Houston Christian University, formerly known as Houston Baptist University. Um, it's been known as Houston Baptist for a long time, so it's going to be hard for us to get used to saying Houston Christian University, but the apologetics department, especially there, um, has made today possible. I want to uh, say a word of thanks uh, to Dr. Phil Tallon, who is our friend and who made the first call that made this possible, but also to David and Mary Beth Baggett, who are in the back. We'll be hearing from Mary Beth at the end of today's service. Without HCU, none of this would have happened. The story did not reach out to make this happen. We did not have anything in our budget left to make this happen. It's all HCU, and we're grateful um, for all the good work that they're doing for the kingdom of God in Houston and beyond. Can we give God thanks for HCU and everything that they do? Now, without any further delay, uh, would you help me welcome to the stage my hero, Dr. William Lane Craig. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for being Thank here. You. All right. Welcome, Dr. Craig. Thank you. So Good to be with you. I, absolutely. I'm, I'm a little bit shaky right now, you guys. All right? Just, I can't believe this is happening today. Okay. Uh, 
I've seen him so many times for so many hours uh, on YouTube and read all of his books, and, and, uh, and to have you here is truly an honor. Your wife, Jan, as well, to have you here, Jan, is an honor, and thank you all for making the way uh, all the way from Atlanta to join us in Houston, and, and um, thank you for all the good work. Our pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Craig, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, I and mean, we mentioned Jan, but about your family and, and kind of where you live, and tell us about your life. Well, in terms of my life, I was raised in um, a nominally Christian home, not even a church-going home. Really? Really. But as a high school student, I began to ask what I call the big questions in life. Why am I here? Who am I? Where am I going? And in the search for answers, I began to attend a large church in our community. But Instead of answers, all I found was a sort of social country club mm. where the dues were a dollar a week in the offering plate, <laughs> and the other high school students who pretended to be such good Christians on Sunday lived for their real God the rest of the week, yeah. which was popularity. Mm. And that really bothered me because I thought, here I am living externally at least a more moral life yeah. than they are, and yet internally... I felt so empty inside. Hmm. And so I began to grow very resentful and bitter toward the institutional church for its hypocrisy and phoniness. And pretty soon that attitude spread toward everyone. I, I, I said, everybody is a phony and a fake. Nobody's genuine. And, and I became very hateful. And hmm. I was on my way to becoming a very alienated young man. And yet in moments of honesty and introspection, as I looked into my own heart, I realized that deep down inside, I really did want to love and to be loved by other people. Right. And that therefore, I was just as much a phony as they were, because here I was putting on this brave face, I don't need people, I don't want them, when deep down inside, I knew I really did. And I don't know if you understand what this is like, but this kind of inner anger just eats away at your insides day after day, making every day miserable, another day to get through. And I remember one day I was feeling particularly crummy. I walked into my high school German class, and I sat down behind a girl who is one of these types that is always so happy, it just makes you sick. And I tapped her on the shoulder, and she turned around, and I said to her, Sandy, what are you always so happy about anyway? And she said, well, Bill, it's because I'm saved. And I said, you're what? And she said, I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I said, well, I go to church. And she said, that's not enough, Bill. You've got to have him really living in your heart. Wow. And I said, well, what would he want to do a thing like that for? <laughs> and she said, because he loves you, Bill. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Here I was so filled with anger and hatred inside. And she said, there was someone who really loved me. And who was it but the God of the universe? Mm. And that thought just staggered me to think that the God of the universe could love me, yeah. Bill Craig, that worm <laughs> down there on the speck of dust called planet Earth. I couldn't take it in. Well, I went home that night, and for the first time in my life, I began to read the New Testament. I found a copy of the New Testament that had been given to us by the Gideons in the fifth grade. Wow. And as I read the Gospels, 
I was absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. There was a wisdom about his teaching that I'd never encountered before, but especially there was an authenticity mm. about his life that wasn't characteristic of those people who claimed to be his followers in that local <laughs> church I was attending. And I realized then I couldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. Well, I went through about six months of the most intense soul searching that I have ever been through. And to just make a long story short, at the end of those six months, one September evening, about eight o'clock at night, I just came to the end of my rope and just yielded my life to God. I, I cried out all of the anger, the bitterness that was inside of me. And I felt this tremendous infusion of joy, like a balloon being blown up and blown up until it was ready to pop. And I rushed outside. I remember it was a warm Midwestern evening. And as I looked up at the sky, I could see the Milky Way from horizon to horizon. And as I looked at the stars, I thought, God, I've come to know God. <laughs> and that moment changed my whole life. Wow. Because I realized that if this was really the truth, that I could do nothing less than spend my entire life spreading this good news among mankind. Yeah. And so for me, my calling to Christian service was simultaneous with my conversion right? experience. And so subsequent to that, I have pursued... Uh, advanced degrees in philosophy and education. I've been joined by my life's partner, Jan, to uh, be with me in this ministry, and the Lord has abundantly blessed over the years. Wow, that is so awesome. Um, so what was the name of the student in the German class? Sandy Tiffin Sandy was Tiffin. her name. I just want all of our students to hear the impact that Sandy Tiffin had on one man who subsequently has impacted many, many, many others, and will continue for who knows how long through his life's work. And so students, pay attention. You never know the kind of impact you can make by being courageous enough. That did take courage to share the gospel with you in German class in a school, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, it's not always a, a friendly environment in which to, to do that. I, I so admire and appreciate Sandy, for her radiant Christian testimony yeah. and for her boldness in speaking out to this snotty <laughs> kid behind her. In you class. really had a low opinion of yourself, Bill. I feel like. Uh. <laughs> no, I, I, understand, I understand so much of what you're saying and, and the joy that overcame you. I think I had a similar experience, but later in life, I was mm -hmm. 33 or 34, I can't remember, when I came to faith in Christ. And, um, and I mentioned this earlier, just in, in Capernaum, just the same feeling overcoming me that day, the, the feeling of simultaneously, like I've been wrong my whole life and God, I'm wow. so sorry. But you're so good, and thank you. All at once, it's a, it's a beautiful experience. So, and after that, I discovered his work and, and really began to reconstruct some of the, the things that I'd been taught when I was young in church, but I, I did it as an act of faith and no longer as an act of religious duty or uh, you know, a, a thing I just had to do. Now I wanted to do it because I loved him. Yes. So uh, you've devoted your life to something called Christian apologetics. Uh, for those who may not know, like just what is apologetics and why devote your life to it? Well, let me just correct one thing. I haven't devoted my life I'm sorry, to apologetics. That's probably right. yeah, I've yeah. devoted my life to Jesus Make Christ. Make a note for the next service. Okay, yeah, got it. <laughs> and, and, and to serving him. I would never myself say I've devoted my life to apologetics 
Yeah. I, I, that would be idolatry when you think about it. That's all I've but, seen of you, Bill. Sorry, yes. No, no. But, but <laughs> my Lord has given me a calling yeah. to fulfill that involves apologetics, which I do passionately pursue. Yeah. And I think it's born out of the conviction that in our increasingly secular society, we need to speak to the whole man, not just to the emotions, but also to the intellect. And therefore, the gospel can be presented in a way that appeals not only to the heart, but also to the head by laying out the factual evidence for the existence of God and his self-revelation in Jesus uh, and for the credibility of the Christian worldview. And so that is the project that I have been embarked on for these many decades. Yeah. What do you think is at stake for, for churches, and why should churches spend time in investing mm. resources and time with, uh, in apologetics, local churches? Yes. There are a number of reasons that could be given for this, but to cut to the simplest uh, reason, I think, is if we don't do this, we're going to lose our youth. Mm. Uh, our kids in high school and university are under a barrage of criticism, uh, overwhelming naturalism and secularism combined with uh, relativism about ethics and religion. And quite honestly, if we do not, from a very young age, teach our children the rational foundations for faith, then increasingly they're going to walk away from it in high school and university. So for the sake of your own children, uh, I would implore you yeah. to study apologetics and to teach it to your children simply at first and then with increasing depth as they grow older. Amen. And uh, a verse you allude to often in your debates and one that's meant a lot to me is from uh, 1 Peter 3. And if you're ever looking for a reason biblically to, to learn how to offer a defense of your faith, this is it. I mean, 1 Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Yes, and the word there for answer is apologia. Is that right? Which connotes a defense, as in a court of law, to present a case yeah. for the truth of the Christian worldview. Yeah, that's awesome. So Dr. Craig has, uh, has debated um, the world's leading atheist voices. I mean, that's where I, I became familiar mm -hmm. with your work. Um, I mean, when I was coming to faith in Christ, the, the new atheist movement was on the rise um, from Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and uh, D David Dennett and Daniel Dennett. Daniel yes. Dennett, that's right, and others. Um, he's debated all of them and, mm -hmm. and kind of had his way with all of them. I could be honest with you, like uh, he was referred to by Sam Harris as the only Christian in the world that puts the fear of God in the new atheists. And so <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. And there's reasons, um, there are reasons for it. Uh, but there are many, we could have shown a whole highlight reel and taken up the whole 40 minute interview, but there are many uh, things to love about his debates with these folks. There was one clip that I wanted to share just from one debate that you had with a British um, biologist whose name was Dr. L Lewis Wolpert. And uh, th this is Dr. Wolpert's response to uh, what 
what is commonly known as the Kalam cosmological argument, which is uh, an argument that I'll ask you to explain in just a moment, but this is an argument for uh, the, uh, the, the idea that the universe must have had a beginning and therefore a beginner. And Dr. Wolpert argued in response that, well, that beginner doesn't need to be God. And this is what uh, happened next. We have the, the clip. I, I was simply saying that this is not a mere matter of speculation, that there's more than a tiny bit of evidence on but, the table. But is, but is he saying evidence that, for what? Evidence for a beginning of the universe. Yes, well, we know that. Nobody uh, disagrees. Right, well, that's what I'm offering in this first argument, is that, the evidence. But, but, but because why? the beginning doesn't imply a God. <laughs> it does if the first premise is true, that whatever begins to exist has a cause. It logically follows. Yeah, that but, doesn't, but, but the cause hasn't got to be God. Well, remember I gave a, uh, an argument for thinking that this causes time Timeless, spaceless, yes, immaterial, uh, enormously powerful, and personal. I think it's a computer. Well, that wouldn't. Uh, computers are designed by people. I no, mean, no, this is a self designing computer. Uh -huh. Timeless. Timeless. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. Why is it time? What's contradictory about it? A, a computer has to function, it takes. Oh, time. no, this is a special computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it has to be logically coherent. Oh, it's logically coherent. Yes, you have to be logically coherent. Oh, no, coherent. this and, computer and besides, is amazing. No, it, it, besides, it, it would have to be, as I said, a personal being. No. In, a computer is a physical Not this computer. Object. Oh, well, no. Okay, see, what you're doing is you're actually, what you're calling a computer is really God. A, a, a non-physical, non... It's just, it's just another word if you rob it of all the attributes that make it a computer. Yeah, teach me your ways, Dr. Craig. <laughs> so good. One of, the, I mean, one of the important notes is that I have from watching you is that the, the last part of Peter's passage about this, it, it says, always with respect mm -hmm. and gentleness, and that's always your way. You're never disrespectful. You. you always are good listeners, uh, a good listener to your opponent in these debates, and that actually helps you to make your points more clearly. And one of the most, I would say, devastating arguments that you make uh, as far as the other side, uh, the, the, the atheist argument being that there's no rhyme or reason to the universe. We're all just here out of, uh, out of nothing, or maybe the universe has always existed, and whatever the case, there's no pattern to it. There's no reason or rationale or purpose. Um, and you have argued a sort of a, a refreshed take of what I mentioned earlier, the Kalam um, cosmological argument, but it's the idea of the, the first cause and, and these yes. three premises. Could you just sort of briefly walk us through that? Yes, it's very simple and easy to memorize and share with your non-believing friend. Premise one is whatever begins to exist has a cause. Things don't just pop into being out of nothing. Premise two is the universe began to exist. And here you can appeal to philosophical arguments and powerful scientific evidence from contemporary cosmology to show that the universe is not past eternal, but began to exist. And from those two premises, it follows logically, therefore the universe has a cause. Mm. And then you can deduce a number of theologically striking properties that a cause of the universe must have. It must be non-physical, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, enormously powerful, and I would argue personal as well. And that is a core concept of what we mean by God. Right. I just want y'all to hear sort of this is the most fundamental uh, argument that, that Dr. Craig makes, and there's a lot more where this comes from, but 
a lot of people, including a lot of you probably don't know yet, that there are these kinds of deeply rational philosophical arguments, these reasonings for the existence of God that allow you to take your faith toe-to-toe with anything the world has to offer without any shame or needing to cower or, you know, just to, to hide your faith in academic circles. No, there, there are really good reasons for belief in God, and in fact, for belief in the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so that is a fascinating argument. Thank you um, for that. Now, I don't know, uh, I don't know how much Netflix you get to watch. A little Uh, bit. A little bit, okay. I'm I'm rather disenfranchised with contemporary films. They're so vulgar and profane and promiscuous. And so it's just hard to find anything worth watching. Yeah, are you sure you've seen Netflix? Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure some of it's yeah. there. Be careful on Netflix is yeah. all I'm saying. It's everywhere. And you're right, profanity and, and uh, just the promise, all of it's everywhere. But there's a, a new show on Netflix about Jeffrey Dahmer, the, uh, oh. the, uh, the serial killer heard about it. Uh, who, is, uh, who was killed in, in his uh, cell, I believe, or killed in prison. And, um, and Dahmer, t- I thought we got a woo for Dahmer. That was a baby. I, okay, I was worried for a second. <laughs> I thought somebody went woo. Okay, see me after the service. Uh, <laughs> it's a baby. So, so, uh, so Dahmer um, has said, in, or said before he died in multiple interviews with various media, various media outlets, that one of the things that made it easier for him to take lives in such a, just an awful, heinous way, mm-hmm. uh, was his avid belief in a pure naturalism, like the, the idea yes. that all that exists is the natural world. There's nothing supernatural at all. Um, and we are here purely because of, you know, what he would call Darwinian processes, unguided evolution. And so what is life really worth? What's anything really worth? And so it, he's not saying in those interviews that that's why he killed people, but he said that made it easier for him to kill people. And later he became a Christian in prison. I don't believe it was just jailhouse religion. I think he really converted. Mm-hmm. But what got him to faith in Christ was someone who met him on a rational ground and said, look, there's another way of seeing the beginnings of the universe and the reasons we have for being. I just wanted to ask you, do you, do you think there's something there about the inherent dangers of a strictly naturalistic oh, worldview? I, I do, uh, Eric. I think that that's absolutely correct. I think in that sense, Dahmer did draw the logical conclusions mm. of atheism and naturalism. When you study the atheistic worldview, it is very dark because there is no purpose for which we or the universe exist. Eventually, the universe will suffer a sort of thermodynamic heat death so that nothing we do makes any difference. We are headed on a path toward annihilation and oblivion, Mm. and really nothing matters in the end. It always turns out the same. Moreover, without God, there isn't any sort of absolute standard for right and wrong good and evil in nature, whatever is, mm. is right. And so there, the, the world is ultimately valueless. And then as well, it seems that the world is ultimately purposeless. There isn't any reason for which you exist. You're an accidental byproduct of environment and genetics. There's no reason for which the human race exists. There's no reason for which the universe exists. It's just the 
product of an accidental explosion that is destined to perish in 100 uh, billion years or so. Yeah. So it is a very dark view, and I think that it is only by living inconsistently with their worldview that contemporary atheists and agnostics are able to live happily mm. uh, in life. I, I do not think that anyone who lives consistently with an atheistic worldview will be happy. He will be in despair, as many French existentialist philosophers and others have, have expressed. On the other hand, if he does manage to live happily, it's only because he lives inconsistently mm, with yeah. his worldview. He takes a leap of faith and affirms objective moral values and duties, the objective meaning of his existence, right. and some sort of purpose to his life and the life of the universe, even though he has no right to those values yeah. uh, in virtue of his worldview. Right. Yeah, and uh, I know in On Guard, uh, the book that I, that I mentioned earlier, I really like it, um, the, uh, the one, one uh, you quote uh, Dostoevsky more than once in it, but one of the quotes from uh, the author Dostoevsky was that if there is no immortality, in other words, I guess another way of saying that would be if there is no God, if there is right. no supernatural realm, right. then all things are permitted. So I want to know what did, what did he mean by that? And uh, also, I want to make sure that we're all hearing you right, because you're not necessarily saying that atheists and agnostics are incapable of morality. No, not um, at all. But, but there's, there's something to be said there. So what are you suggesting? Yes, th this is extremely important. The claim is not that in order to live a moral life, you have to believe in God. Mm. That's evidently false. Rather, the claim is that if there is no God, then there is no absolute standard for moral values or moral duties, and that therefore um, it's all relative. So what is needed for an objective moral life is not the belief in God, it's God mm. himself as a foundation for these. And that was what Dostoevsky saw in the novel The Brothers Karamazov, this saying is um, it expresses the worldview of Ivan Karamazov, the atheistic of the brothers. And Dostoevsky's point in that magnificent novel is to show the unlivability of this point of view. Um, one of the brothers murders their father. And when Ivan protests, his brother said, but you're the one who said that there is no God and therefore nothing matters. And therefore, how can you condemn me for patricide? It's your own worldview that leads to this. And Ivan is unable to live with the logical consequences of his own view and suffers a mental collapse. Mm. And so Dostoevsky just so brilliantly portrays the unlivability of this atheistic, naturalistic worldview, and then contrasts it with the life of the Christian brother uh, Alyosha, who is a Russian Orthodox priest, who experiences suffering, affirms suffering, um, and finds deep meaning in a relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. Mm, wow. So it's, uh, it's, it's, I just want to make sure everyone hears, it's possible for Christians to live immorally, and it's possible for atheists <laughs> and agnostics to live morally, but the question isn't the living out uh, of morality. The question is the reasoning for the morality in the first place. Like, yes, what's that's right. The Are they consistent with right. their worldview in living morally, yeah. um, 
or are they rather contradicting their own moral worldview by the way they live? Yeah. And I think, frankly, that it's impossible to live consistently and happily as though life is without meaning, value, or purpose. Yeah. And so we'll practically find no one who manages to live consistently and happily with an atheistic worldview. Right. Fascinating. So uh, Dr. Craig has, uh, has never stopped working a day in his life, I don't think. He is uh, still writing, and, and um, one of his most recent books, maybe the most recent book, is uh, In Quest of the Historical Adam, um, A-D-A-M, like the first man, right? And that's, uh, that's uh, a really courageous book to write. And, um, and, and so I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that book. I wish I had a copy with me. I had to buy the ebook for this one. No bookstores are carrying it locally for some reason. Either that or they're sold out. Now, let's say that. They're sold out, and it makes me <laughs> feel better. So uh, I, I, Barnes & Noble is like, uh, no one, I couldn't find it anywhere, but, so I just got the ebook, and y'all can as well. But uh, this was a risky undertaking, for you as an academic. I'll tell y'all why, maybe you're aware already, but like the idea of a historical Adam and Eve, like the idea that we all, all humanity goes back to two historical people who were the first human beings and we all share that common ancestor is not a common or popular idea at all in most academic circles. But Dr. Craig and a few others are starting to really bring that back. And uh, at the same time, I know you've said this is a book that you're bound to catch a lot of heat for from both polarities of the theological spectrum because you're not a young earth creationist no on the one hand and you're obviously not uh, you know a sort of liberal secularist on the other so why do you why do you anticipate catching flack from both sides of that yeah well i so appreciate talking to you pastor eric about this because you were educated in seminary in the more liberal perspective, which yeah. denied the historicity of Adam and Eve. Oh, denied. Genesis 1 through 11, we were told, was just pure mythology, mostly borrowed from older cultures. Yes. And it's never meant to be read historically in any way, shape, or form. It's just archetypal yeah. uh, sort of mythology. Exactly. And so you appreciate the position I'm taking this book is actually a pretty robust uh, orthodox defense of the historicity of Adam and Eve at some point in the past. Right. Whereas people who are more literalist and, and on the far right look at my book, and because I interpret much of Genesis 1 to 11 figuratively rather than literally, think that this is a compromise, it's moving in the direction of liberalism, and I think they do not understand what you understand, mm. having once been on that other side. The poetry of it and some yeah. of the artistry of it. Yeah, and, and so sure. uh, what I argue in the book is that the idea that there was a founding human pair from which all humanity has descended is perfectly consistent with the modern evidence of paleoanthropology and genetics mm so long as we date that human pair to have lived around 750,000 years ago. Wow. And that requires us to read some of Genesis 1 to 11 in a figurative rather than a literal way. You, you can't just count up the years and say, oh, well, Adam lived 10 to 20,000 years ago. I think that so long as you are willing to interpret those passages in a more figurative way, then there's no problem with having a founding pair that lived around 
750,000 years ago. And so I think that Adam and Eve were probably members of the species Homo heidelbergensis, which was the last common ancestor of both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And part of my work that was so fascinating to me was discovering the really full humanity of Neanderthals. They were different in some ways from Homo sapiens, but these were intelligent uh, human beings, our cousins, probably language users like early Homo sapiens. Hmm. Uh, and I think we're also descended from Adam and Eve, and we'll see some of them in heaven, I hope, God, God wow. willing. Yeah. So um, the, the only thing to be added to this is that my interpreting some of Genesis 1 to 11 figuratively is not arbitrary. It's not, and I mean this as earnestly as I can, it is not motivated by trying to make Genesis 1 to 11 consistent with modern science. Rather, it is based upon a literary analysis of the text itself, mm. which suggests that this text is not meant to be read with a sort of wooden literalness. And in that sense, it's much like other portions of the Bible. The Bible has so many kinds of literature in it. For example, the book of Revelation is Jewish apocalyptic mm -hmm. literature, and it's not meant to be read literally. These beasts and dragons that come and take over the world aren't animals. Mm. They're meant to be symbols of nation states and alliances. Everybody knows that. Mm. The Psalms are poetry. So when the psalmist says, let the trees of the wood clap their hands before the Lord, he's not teaching botany. He doesn't think <laughs> trees have hands. It's poetry. Yeah. And similarly, I think that Genesis 1 to 11 belongs to a literary genre that you can show doesn't need to be interpreted with a sort of wooden literalism. And that gives room then for thinking that Adam and Eve could have lived much, much further back in the past than just... 10, 20,000 years ago. Yeah, I really appreciate the approach um, that you take there because at least what, what I'm hearing is uh, like if you, if you don't or can't for whatever reason take the Bible literally across the board in, in Genesis 1 through 11, let's say, um, the alternative that is out there, the only other alternative most people think is out there is just throw the whole Bible out um, or, you know, this kind of... Uh, ultra-liberal approach to Scripture that just says, well, it's all sort of mythological, and we should all just read it, the whole thing, that way. Um, but I think, Dr. Craig, you're inviting us into a more discerning approach to Scripture yeah, that, that recognizes that, that genre. approach that you just mentioned is extremely naive. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look at the literary type that Genesis 1 to 11 is, I think that you can make a very good case for what I just said. And in the book as well, I argue extensively that you can show that Genesis 1 to 11 are not derived mm. from ancient Egyptian or Mesopotamian myths, as has been claimed, but they are oh, yeah. utterly of a different type in their portrayal of a monotheistic, transcendent God and what I call a desacralization of nature, yeah. that the moon and the stars, the animals, they're not gods. They're just things, natural things that God has made mm. and that God himself transcends the world and in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. Right, powerful. 
Uh, so the book is called In Quest of Historical Adam. Um, I, I want to talk about Jesus before we run out of time. <laughs> We're almost out of time. Uh, and I hate that, that I left Jesus for the very end. My bad, Jesus. Uh, so uh, my faith came alive when I understood the historical, actual, physical reasons for believing in Jesus. Um, and your explanation of the reasonable, rational approach to the understanding the resurrection and the reasons for believing in the resurrection really uh, took my heart by storm. So I, I just would like to hear you talk through what reasons a skeptic has to consider yeah. belief in uh, the empty tomb of Jesus. Yes, I did my doctoral work in theology at the University of Munich in Germany on the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. And although at that time as a Christian, I believed Jesus rose from the dead, I frankly had no idea of how firm the historical credentials for that event are. There are five facts that are widely agreed upon by the majority of New Testament historians today, whether conservative or liberal, Christian or non-Christian. Right. And these would include that Jesus of Nazareth died by Roman crucifixion for claiming to be king of the Jews. Secondly, that his body was then interred in a tomb by a delegate of the Jewish Sanhedrin, whose name we have, Joseph of Arimathea, right. that that tomb was then discovered empty on the first day of the week by a group of Jesus' female disciples. That thereafter, the various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. And finally, that the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Now, in support of each of those five facts, there are multiple lines of evidence that I lay out in the book so that the vast majority of New Testament historians today are convinced that those are factual, sure. historical. Yeah. The question then is, how do you best explain them? Mm. And here various hypotheses have been proposed. The conspiracy hypothesis, the hallucination hypothesis, the wrong tomb hypothesis, and what I call the resurrection hypothesis, that yeah. God raised him from the dead. And I think that when you assess these alternative historical hypotheses using the standard criteria for weighing historical explanations, like explanatory power, explanatory scope, plausibility, degree of ad hocness, uh, or artificiality, and so forth, that the resurrection hypothesis emerges head and shoulders above any of these naturalistic alternatives, and yeah. that therefore by far the best explanation of the evidence is the one that these original disciples gave. Yeah. God raised him from the dead. Wow. So all of the five facts are historically attested, and, and many of them not just in the Bible or by the scriptures. It's attested, these facts are attested by other historical ancient sources that that uh, you know, co coincide with the, the scriptural attestations of, of Jesus, these events of his, of his death and burial and resurrection. And the, the point Dr. Craig makes so profoundly is that if all these five things are historically attested, then they must be explained. And, and the hallucination theory you didn't mention, but that's my favorite ex yeah. uh, explanation, sort of ridiculous explanation of folks that really get backed into a corner with those five facts because Jesus really yeah. died on a Roman cross. Yeah, these... And, these 
naturalistic explanations are so bad. They're so bad. That you will typically find that those who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus don't propound any of these naturalistic alternatives. Instead, they just remain agnostic. Yeah. They just say, something incredible happened that Easter morning, and we don't know what it is. Right. And so they, they simply have no explanation. Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Craig, we are just about out of time. I just would be curious if we're a church where skeptics know they're welcome, and a lot of folks are, get wrapped around some axle of doubt, you know, and, and just can't quite uh, get free from that. What would your uh, final word be to someone who's here today who's just on the fence, sort of not yeah. quite certain about what to do with this doubt? A lot of them, for example, would say, I like what I hear about Christianity. It's just the Christians I've experienced that oh, I can't, yeah, I can't yeah. take. And oh, uh, I don't want to be one of them. Like, what would you say to someone who's uh, in that place? Today? Well, Sandy gave me very good advice uh, at that time. She said, don't look at other people, Bill. Look at Jesus. Hmm. Who was he? And so I would encourage folks who are on the fence to look at the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That involves reading the New Testament for yourself so that you can familiarize yourself firsthand with this man's life yeah. and teachings. Uh, and then I would also remind them that the quest to find God is not just an intellectual exercise. This is a deeply spiritual quest mm. because it involves coming to God with all your sinfulness and all your evil in humility and repentance and saying, God, I need your forgiveness. I'm sorry for what I've done. And that's a lot different than just arriving at some intellectual conclusion. This involves a sort of self-abasement uh, or self-denial yeah. by saying, I was wrong. I, I need to be cleansed and forgiven. And so I would encourage folks to seek intellectually, yes, uh, you will find good reasons to believe, but also be involved in that spiritual quest as well. Open to God, open your heart to him and seek him in humility. Wow, thank God for you, Dr. Craig. Can we thank uh, Dr. Craig for being thank here you. today? Thank you.